So, Jeff, people have been finding ways to occupy themselves here uh, of late, and one of the things you've done is uh, you've gone to social media and you've put out some really funny videos uh, about hitting philosophies, kind of satirically so. Uh, so I guess let's start with that. What what inspired you to uh, to start to do that sort of thing? It was kind of funny. Uh, I mean, I communicate with a couple buddies of mine that are scouts all the time, and we send each other these funny things we see on social media. A lot of them are, you know, these new these new ideas about how to teach hitting, and so we just kind of joke around and send them to each other, and, and we all played. Um, at some level and, you know, never heard any of these things that are being talked about or taught now. So we just kind of goof around. And one day I was just out in the backyard uh, with my son and goofing off. And I said, Hey, I want you to video me imitating this drill that we saw. And he did it. And, you know, it was about 12 second video. And it's like, I'm gonna put it on Twitter and see what happens. And my buddy, one of the scouts says, Hey man, you got 400 views. I was like, I know that's crazy. I couldn't believe I had that many views. And, and then, like, a few hours later, he's like, dude, you got, like, 4,000 views. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, and it just kept getting more and more and more. And I think the first video is, I mean, if you combine Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, it's probably got over 15,000 views, and it was just goofing off in the yard. And the backlash, Jared, was incredible from a lot of guys that are teaching this stuff. And um, they kind of got personal with me and mentioned my son on social media and, uh, it kind of got under my skin. I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to make another video now and see where this goes. And the second video, I was probably close to 100,000 views on three different platforms of social media. But it's just a spoof. It's just goofing around. It's amazing how many people think I'm serious. So uh, let me ask you this, though, on, on the the serious side of it. What are – I mean, the game has evolved in, in the way that the game is is maybe understood – uh, has changed it in in some degree, and uh, you know, I I think it's I hope that in all sports that you know continues to be the case that we continue to evolve and and look at you know what works and what doesn't. But what are the things with the way the game has changed? What are the things that you like, and what are the things that you don't like? I I just don't like all the data being used now. I think it's and the video being used to compare, um, you know, the greats of all time. Uh, and their swings and to, you know, and then use that as the way you're supposed to do it now, because we're all different we all had different swings. And in my whole life, nobody ever mentioned anything about my swing. If you could hit, you could hit. And we've seen guys, you know, growing up a Rangers fan, you've seen, you know, Ruben Sierra, Julio Franco, Juan Gonzalez, you know, all these guys hit differently. And I think the, my problem is, is that we're trying to teach everybody the same thing. And Major League Baseball players, I mean, just by the, the pure fact that there's 750 of them in a season, starting out the season, there's going to be 750 Major League Baseball players in the world with over 7 billion people. So these guys are elite. These guys are the best of the best. Um, and most of these guys are freakish athletes. So teaching young kids to hit like Barry Bonds and Aaron Judge and Mike Trout, to me it's a disservice to these kids. They need to just go out and play and have fun, and they'll develop their own swing over time. And I think we've gotten away from that. Now, you were not a guy 
in your career who would hit 210 with 40 home runs. And, and that type of guy really was probably frowned upon when you played. And, and that guy now is uh, maybe more accepted. But one of the things I know in your videos that you, you discussed, you know, in a comedic sense, but I, I know that just from being around you that you do mean it, and you, you sort of already alluded to that, but is is this idea of hitting fly balls and really just like lifting the ball and uh, that sort of thing. What are your thoughts on, on that specifically? Because that is one of, the, I guess, the prevailing uh, uh, philosophies preached by hitting folks here of late is let's get the ball in the air and, and just, you know, let the rest kind of play itself out. Yeah, that works for the superstars, I guess. But, you know, the guys my size, I would have never made it probably past double A if I had tried to develop a loft in my swing. Um, I was told to hit line drives and ground balls, and that's it. And that's my, during my generation, there were a lot of guys like me that weren't power hitters, but you could still have a successful career um, doing the little things, moving guys over, butting guys over. Um, so that's what I patterned my game around, being that type of player. And nowadays, it's like the strikeout is accepted. Um, it used to be the worst thing. If I struck out in the game, I was so mad for two days. I didn't, I didn't want to strike out. That was the worst thing that could happen to me in a game was striking out. Putting the ball in play, putting pressure on, always felt like something positive could happen. But now the data suggests that, you know, about 80% of ground balls are out. So guys are, you know, being told, don't hit the ball on the ground. You're going to be out eight out of ten times. Um, and I think the whole game has changed to that where everybody's trying to hit fly balls now and uh, accepting strikeouts and low batting averages. And I just, to me, that's part of the reason the game is hard to watch now. It's just not as much action. You know, it's funny because I remember when I was growing up going to games, which was while you were playing, I just was like, I was so hopeful that I would get to see my team hit one home run. Like, that was when I was five or six. Like, that was the coolest thing. And now it's like, it's gone to the point where we're seeing five, six, seven home runs between the two teams in a game. And then also, with all the walks and strikeouts and home runs, I have a much greater appreciation for just watching a a shortstop field a ground ball and and throw the ball to first uh, first base. And just the, the idea of the ball in play... You know, you, you think like, what are things that you, you didn't realize that you you loved or you have a, a greater appreciation for? I have a greater appreciation for just watching the ball in play, even on routine outs, watching guys do their thing as opposed to watching a, a batter walk back to the dugout or walk to first base or trot around the bases. Not that I don't love the home run, but I, I don't know that I have that romantic relationship with the home run that I did when I was growing up because of the way this game has sort of evolved. Well, you don't have the pronounced rallies like we used to have where you string four or five hits together in an inning, you know, guy lead off walk and then you hit and run first and third and then you've got action, you know, then you have a chance to you put a crooked number on the board. But now it's, I mean, home runs are rally killers, you know, home runs clear the bases and, uh, you know, it's just a lot of station to station waiting for one of your big boppers to hit a home run. And, um, to me, it's not exciting, and it, you know I love baseball. It's my life. It's been my passion since I was a little boy. Over forty years, I've you know just you know when I was a little boy, all I would do is get up in the morning and look at the sports section to see how many hits my favorite player got in the newspaper, and 
what his batting average was. But now batting average isn't important. If you look at the last two years of Major League Baseball, last year they hit 252, the year before 248. They haven't hit that low in Major League Baseball since like the 40s. So to me, it's you know station to station, waiting for the three-run homer, and a lot of the strategy is gone where you know, managers would use their gut and put on a hit and run or a squeeze play and things like that. And I mean, a good example is that, you know, I heard that the Boston Red Sox weren't even going to work on bunning in spring training. I mean, I, can you even believe that? I mean, bunning was, was such a big part of the, the way the game, I know, like, you know, I went to college in California and the knock on, you know, whether it's a knock or a label or whatever was that the California schools, they had to get them on, bun them over, get them in philosophy that you just don't see anymore. Yep. I mean, Cal State Fullerton, I think, was the first one that started that. Um, you can kind of understand that mentality in college when, when they uh, put in the BB core bats because in my day, I mean, Pete and Cavillia was hitting 40, 50 home runs in college. You know, great hitters were hitting 30 to 40 home runs, and you just don't see that anymore because of the bats. Um, with the BB core bats, so they kind of have to play the station to station. Um, but I mean, nothing is prettier to me than a, a perfectly executed hit and run with a guy going, you know, you know, runner on first, hit and run. And next thing you know, you got first and third, no outs. Now you got a big rally started, and um, I just think a lot of that's gone from the game. And you know, some of my teammates, Juan Gonzalez, one of the best hitters I ever played with. Juan Gonzalez, with a runner on third, wouldn't just try to hit a home run. He would try and put the ball in play hard up the middle. If it got in the gap, he'd have an extra base hit. But his first job was to get that runner home. And now you see guys going up there, runners in scoring position, and they're not thinking about getting that one run in. They're thinking about knocking in three runs. And the next thing you know, they pop up and strike out, and we don't score any runs at any. Jeff, uh, after your playing career, you got into the, the agency side. First of all, I guess to the origin of that, what? What excited you about making that move? How how did that all kind of develop you uh, getting into that particular field when you were done playing? Well, I wanted to stay involved in the, in professional baseball, and I, I really didn't want to go back out and coach and you know go in the minor leagues. Back in those days, you weren't getting a job right as a big league coach. You had to go, you know, like an A ball and start and coach and put in your time. And I'd been gone from home so much, I didn't want to do that. I had young kids. And I also had an opportunity with scouting. Um, actually Thad Levine called me, um, right after I retired and asked if I was interested in being a pro scout. And I said, well, how many times a week will I have to be at the field? He says probably five or six. I said, no chance. You know, I didn't want to spend that much time at the field. I'd been gone for 15 years. So a friend of mine uh, mentioned that, uh, he was talking to another guy about starting a sports agency. So I said, what the heck, I can work, I can be on the side of the players, like I always wanted to fight for the players, and stay involved in the game, make my own schedule, and work out of my house. And that's what I did, started 19 years ago. All right, so you got involved, uh, I, I think, you know, whenever you're on, you mentioned being on the other side, whenever you're on the other side of things, even though as a player you're very connected to the agent because the agent represents you, there are always things that you don't, no, or, or you don't realize what what were some of the I don't know if mind blowing's too strong of a word, but what were some of the things where you're like, wow, like I I was a major leaguer for all these years, and I 
You know, I had all these conversations with my agent, but I didn't realize this, or I didn't really realize that about the life of the agent and, and what they deal with. Uh, and, and, and I guess now, you know, I'd say what you deal with or dealt with uh, when you were on the representation side. Well, I can tell you this. I was an easy client for my agent. I didn't bother him much. I, you know, if I needed bats, I'd, I'd tell our clubby. If I needed a glove from Wilson, I wouldn't bother calling my agent. I'd either call Wilson or have the clubby call Wilson or Reebok or whatever. And what I found out when I become an agent, became an agent, was that uh, some of these players are very needy. And, I mean, they're asking for all – we actually had a player one time ask for shower shoes. Um, he didn't want to go spend $5 at some shower shoes at Walmart, so he wanted us to get him some $20 slides from Reebok or something. And it's just the players are very needy. They um, – totally different from, from my generation. I also didn't realize how cutthroat the industry was when I first got in. Excuse, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, these guys will steal your client, man, the minute you turn your back. And, and that was hard to, that was hard for me to take because I'm an honest person. And, um, I mean, I'm not going to shake your hand and walk away and call your client. And that goes on a lot in this industry. And, I mean, that was that was a real eye-opener for me, Jared. What were some of the things you enjoyed most about it? I know, you know, obviously, being a former player, getting the chance to fight with former players, or fight for former, or sorry, getting the chance to fight for current players, uh, but what were some of, like, the, the most enjoyable moments you had as an agent? Oh, man. I mean, when your guy gets his first major league call-up, I remember Mark Lowe getting his first major league call-up, Ian Kinsler getting his first call-up. Michael Choice getting his first call up. I mean, it was like I made the big leagues. You know, you just are so happy. Um, and a lot of people think maybe just because you think you're going to get paid now, but really as an agent, you don't get paid for three years. I mean, once a guy gets to the big leagues, he's making the minimum salary. You don't make a penny. We make 5% or 4% um, off of what they make over the minimum. So until they get to arbitration or free agency, you're not really making very much money. And the whole time, you're communicating them. You're going to watch them play. You're getting them equipment deals, baseball card deals, endorsement deals, and it's just, you know, it's a long process to make any money off a player. Um, but I would say, you know, the most gratifying is when your guy makes the big leagues. I mean, Darren Oliver was my first client. He was my teammate and my first client, and he called me um, in the off season and says, "Friday, I need you to help me get help." get a job. And I was like, D, you're with Scott Boris. He goes, I know. I said, well, I can't do anything, but you're with Scott Boris. He goes, well, stay on the phone. I want you to hear me fire him. I was like, no, that's okay. Uh, just call me back. He calls me back five minutes later. All right, I fired him, left a voicemail. See what you can do. Within 48 hours, I had him a job with the Rockies going to camp. Uh, and he reinvented himself. He met Bob Apodaca, the pitching coach, developed a cutter, and was one of the best relief pitchers in the game for the next nine years. I think he hit a home run while he was with the Rockies, too. Yeah, he has one home run. I've heard about it many times. I, I bet you have. I have as well. <laughs> no, uh, Darren could really hit. He could hit. Oh, yeah. he. I mean, his. if you look at his hitting numbers, uh, they're they're actually, like, pretty impressive. And we, we were joking about batting average. He actually has a better career batting average than some uh, everyday regulars at the big league level these days. Yeah, he did. I mean, at one point, he had the highest career batting average of any current major league pitcher. I think it was around 220 or something like that. So he took a lot of pride in his hitting. I know that. So, you know, you mentioned Scott Boris, and 
we always hear about uh, players represented by Scott Boris, and 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 that's a big agency. He's got a, a big operation there, and uh, you know, I actually had the chance to to learn a little bit about how he went about things because his son Shane was. Uh, uh, part of the baseball program at USC while I was there, and, and Scott was always around. But uh, I know that, you know, the way he goes about things, or, you know, I don't want to say it's on one total extreme, but uh, just because you're a Scott Boris client doesn't mean you're constantly interacting with Scott Boris. And I guess that's, you know, for some of the, 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 the bigger agencies like that, that could be a downside to a player like Darren Oliver, who isn't maybe as, as much of a gener- uh, revenue generating. Uh, you know, I, I hate to use the word asset, but I think you know from a business standpoint, that's how they view these players. Whereas someone like yourself and, and uh, your agency, you guys—I mean, there wasn't a, a, a client you had that you didn't interact with, right? No, I mean that was part of the fun of it. It was interacting with these guys. I mean, you know, I I have a lot in common with these guys. We have a lot of the same hobbies, and I mean, Ian Kinsler, early part of his career, stayed at my house till three in the morning playing. We bowling and slept on my floor, you know. Um, but I, you know, it's not just because he was a big leaguer. I would do that for any one of my clients. Um, but when you're in an agency that has hundreds and hundreds of clients, um, it, there's just not enough hours in the day for one guy to handle all those guys. And although they might be represented by Scott Boris or CAA or one of these bigger agencies, there's kind of a pecking order where the guys who are the highest revenue guys get to talk to the big dogs. And they trickle trickle down effect where maybe uh, a middle of the road guy doesn't quite get to talk to Scott as much. I mean, I, Scott was my agent for four months my last year of the minor leagues, um, and I talked to him one time during that. So, you know, I would generally talk to my clients at least once a week. Um, some guys more often than that just kind of depend on how things were going for them. But when you have a lot of clients, a lot of times you don't get to talk to the big boss. What's something like realistically that you would change about the agency world, whether it's a policy or, or a rule or something? What, what's something that you think has got to change, either to benefit the players or to benefit the agents, just to to make the the agent player world a, a better world? Well, I, you know, a couple of years ago they changed the rule where high school kids could have agents instead of advisors. It used to always be where uh, if you represented an amateur, you were his advisor, which the rules stipulate that you're not allowed to negotiate on that player's behalf, um, which all the agents negotiate on their player's behalf. That's the way the system works. But by the letter of the law, by the rules, you're not supposed to. But everybody knows Scott Boris was negotiating Bryce Harper's deal when he was an amateur or Steven Strasburg's deal or um, Arenado and these guys. So that rule, I think, needs to change. I mean, they should be allowed to have agents. Now, high school kids can have agents, but technically, if they don't sign and they go to college, they're supposed to terminate their agent, and then it becomes an advisor role again, which to me makes no sense. Um, but because of the compliance directors at the schools and the NCAA, they've changed that rule to where college kids can have advisors and high school kids agents. All right, Jeff, uh, I want to kind of get into I know we're going kind of in a, a weird order here but I want to get into to your career uh all right so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about uh was your time in Toronto and that, that was the end of your career uh what was it like 
playing in Toronto. I, I know that, uh, I, gosh, I want to say, was that the, the right around the time when the Expos left Canada? Did, was it before or after the Expos went to Washington? It was, uh, I actually played against the Expos in 2001, my um, my last year in the big leagues. Okay, and I think yeah. that, that, that was, was that their last year? I think it was. I think it was. Okay. Um, we bust from Toronto to Montreal. I'll never forget that. <laughs> you so did it? You, you bust? We bust, yeah. Was that like just, was there something wrong with the plane or? No, no. We um, we had a, uh, an off day and a uh, charity golf tournament that everybody on the team played in. And then we had a little banquet and then we got on the bus and drove to uh, Montreal. How long is that drive? I don't remember. I think it was five or six hours or something like that. That's crazy. I mean, because, you know, we fly to Houston, and that's like a, that's a three- to four-hour drive if we were to, to take a bus. But uh, I, I guess one of the things that strikes me about baseball in, in Toronto nowadays is that that's Canada's only team. But even when you were there, I mean, it was one of two teams. And I've never been to Montreal, but, I, you know, I know how – French influence it is, and, and maybe, I, I don't know if it feels like a different world over there because of that, but what was it like being one of two teams in an entire country? It's pretty cool, man. Um, I was disappointed that we didn't have um, bigger crowds. You know, After a month and a half, we were in first place in the American League East, and we're playing the Yankees in the four-game weekend series, and we had like 20,000 fans a night, and I was like, man, we're you know, this is I. I realized it was a hockey town. You know, and when the Blue Jays were, you know, winning World Series, I mean, they were drawing like four million fans a season, and you know, they were one of the most exciting teams, and the fans were going nuts. And I never really got to experience that fandom um, in Toronto. Um, I did love Toronto; it's a beautiful city. Um, but just, I mean, coming from. You know, having played in Boston, which in my mind is the most exciting place, you know, Boston, New York, or Chicago, in my mind, are probably the most exciting places to play. Um, it was it was a little bit disappointing, to be honest. All right, now, you played with a guy who, I, I don't know why, I was always like really fascinated by him. Uh, outstanding player. Maybe it's because of Toronto. I don't know why. Uh, just... I don't. I don't feel like he got talked about. Maybe he did when he was playing. He certainly doesn't get talked about enough now for the career he had. But what was it like playing with Carlos Delgado? I mean, this is a guy who almost hit 500 home runs. But uh, when, when we talk about like the the first baseman of that era, I, I just don't hear his name get talked about as much. I know, and I knew you were going to say Carlos because he was. I mean, he was a stud and. You know, the guy's hitting 30, 40 homers a year and just a consummate professional. I mean, first-class guy. Um, but you never hear them talk about him, and I don't understand. He was, you know, one of the top three first basemen, in my mind, um, in the game during his career, and he's never talked about. And I just don't understand that either, Jerry. Why is he – because he's not in the Hall of Fame, right? No. Why not? I don't know if it's because he played in Canada his whole career. You know, I think he might have played a little bit. I forget who he might have played with at the end of his career, but, I mean, almost his entire career with the Blue Jays, and he was a great hitter. And, it's, I mean, it's 
doesn't seem right that they don't talk about him much for the Hall of Fame. He was on the ballot. I, I just pulled this up. He was on the ballot in 2015, and he didn't even receive the 5% required to stay on the ballot. That, that just baffles me because... I mean, you look at his numbers, and and I could be wrong. I don't think he was ever implicated with any of the the PED stuff. Uh, and you look at his numbers, and they're mind blowing. I mean, the guy had had an, an unbelievable career, and I don't know if he's a victim of of a combination of what you talked about, Toronto, and then playing in an era where you know the the numbers were inflated or or whatever. But I just I was always intrigued by this guy because. It seemed like, as you mentioned, every year he was so, so, so good, but never got the publicity that that I thought he deserved. Another guy you played with was Raul Mondesi, and he seemed like a guy who always had a a whole world of talent. Oh, yeah. And I I played with uh, Mondesi, I think, toward the end of his career, not in his prime, but he was a freakish athlete, too. I mean, this guy could hit the ball 480 feet, and he had a cannon. Um, he could run. Um, you know, I wish I got an opportunity to play with him during his prime because he was a special talent. And I mean, back to Carlos and nothing against Harold Baines. I think he's deserving to be in the Hall of Fame too. But I mean, in my mind, was Harold? I mean, do you think Harold Baines is a better player than Carlos Delgado? No, and and he's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I. I don't, uh, and I think if you stack up the numbers, then it, it's even tougher to make that argument. T- tougher to make the argument that, that Harold deserves in over Carlos. I mean, it just, yeah, I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, Harold may have had more years and maybe bigger bigger bulk numbers or something, but, I mean, if you go by the you know year-to-year averages, I'm sure Carlos averaged upper 20s to 30 home runs and 90 to 100 RBIs for probably 12 years or more. And um, and he doesn't even get a sniff of it. It doesn't seem fair. All right, I, I want to ask you about hitting for the cycle. It actually came against the Rangers. Uh, and if I if my memory is correct, Ricky Lede was playing right field, and uh, you, you made that day pretty tough for him, uh, hitting a couple balls over over there. But that was your last year, and, and to to hit for the cycle, uh, I guess just in general, what what was that like? And then. Uh, I think you know what I might ask you about as, as a follow-up, but just to, to be able to look back and have that moment, what, what was that like? That was cool. I mean, it was a difficult season for us. I mean, we didn't really – our pitching wasn't that good, and we just – you know, we weren't really in the race. And, um, at, you know, later in the season, you know how it works out, where a lot of times – we had a first-year manager, Buck Martinez, so he's playing a lot of the young guys and – and uh, so I really wasn't playing on a consistent basis, and I always got excited to play against the Rangers. And um, I just went to the field that day not even knowing if I was in the lineup, and I get there, and I'm hitting ninth, playing third, and Darren Oliver, you know, my buddy is pitching. So I was excited, you know. And I mean, thankfully, Ricky Lede was playing right because he hooked me up a couple times. The first one was – you know, kind of a lazy fly ball to right that bounced over his head for a triple, and then I hit one pretty good in the gap that he kind of took a bad route on and went over his head. And next thing you know, I'm, you know, halfway to the cycle off my buddy. And um, then Mahomes comes in, and I, he hangs the curveball, and I hit it. I mean, it didn't clear the fence by much and didn't stay fair by much. And now I'm, you know, a single away from the cycle, and I think I'm hitting 240 at the time, you know, not even playing every day. 
And so I was nervous about it because I didn't know uh, what to do if I hit a ball that I could have a double on. So I went in the dugout to Cito Gaston, who I respected very much. He had you know, a great managerial career and a great player. And I said, Cito, what do I do if I hit one in the corner right here? He goes, well, stop it first and tell him I told you to. I said, are you sure? He goes, absolutely. So I go to home plate and, you know, I'm caught in mouth. I'm so nervous facing Kevin Foster. And I get it. I should have hit the first pitch. It was right down the middle. But I get a 3-1 count. And trust me, we were winning by eight runs in the eighth inning. If it was anything close, I was swinging. Um, so sure enough, I hit a, uh, a line drive over Michael Young's head that goes all the way to the wall. And so I'm taking a huge turnaround first, and I'm yelling at the first base coach, Garth, coach uh, Garth Orge. You know, what do I do? What do I do? And he says, stay here, stay here. So took a big turn, went back to first. and I mean, standing ovation. Kelly Gruber happened to be in town at an autograph appearance, and they called him over to the field. Uh, he walks on the field. You know, the game stops. And, you know, there was some controversy, which I know is what you're going to ask me next, about stopping at first. And I felt really bad about it because I was always the guy – um, that took pride in playing the game the right way and not being selfish. And, you know, if we weren't winning by eight runs in the bottom of the eighth inning, I would have I had a double. Well, and and I, I'm sorry, Jerry, that, that's what I was going to ask because I, I know you well enough to know that you, if you were the tying run or if it was a close game, that never would have happened. But, like, at the end of the day, and, and I kind of felt this way, I guess I want to get your thoughts on what took place at the end of last year's Rangers season, but... At the end of the day, I mean, you hit for the cycle, and no one can take that away from you. And, I mean, as we sit here today, was anyone harmed because you stopped at first? I'm not saying that, you know, it, people doing that regularly for whatever reason is, is the best way to go about it, but in that specific situation, I mean, I don't – is anyone worse for the wear because you did that? I don't think so. No, I don't either. Um but I did get some backlash, to be honest with you. And, you know, I felt bad enough. At the time, Jerry Naren was the manager of the Rangers, and Jerry was the bench coach uh, under Johnny Oates when I played for the Rangers, and I had a great relationship with Jerry. So during uh, BP, um, Jerry was over there in their dugout, and I walked all the way over there, shook his hand. He was talking, I believe, to Eric Nadell and I think the traveling secretary, Dan Schimmick, and or maybe even John Blake, I'm not sure. And I just shook his hand. I said, Jerry, I just want to come over here and tell you that I'm sorry for stopping at first base. And he, and his response really was disappointing to me because it was, he just kind of gave me the stone face and said, just play the game, just play the game. I said, yeah, I want to congratulate you on, uh, you know, being a manager too. And I walked away pretty disappointed that, you know, I didn't have to go over there and say anything. He's not, I don't play for the Rangers anymore. Um, but I felt like it was, you know, out of respect for him to go do that. And I read in the paper the next day that said he teaches his players to play the game the right way. And that was, that didn't sit very well with me, Jared. Did you, (laughs) You have you talked to him since? No, no, but I, no, I talked to some of the coaches who were with the Rangers at the time, you know, Rudy Hadamio, who was my hitting coach coming up. Bobby Jones was my manager three years in the Meyer leagues. And they said, I don't worry about that crap. You know, don't worry about it. And uh, so, But it was kind of a bummer to me that I went out of my way to do what I felt was respectful, and I got that response. 
So I, I guess I'm curious your thoughts. At the end of last year, Mike Miner was going for 200 strikeouts, which is not a you know I, I guess it's 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 not an individual uh, game thing. It, it's a, it's a season thing. So maybe it doesn't compare apples to apples. And it seemed pretty apparent that he and Jose Trevino uh, had a foul ball drop to enhance Mike's chances. It was going to be his likely his last chance, and he ends up getting 200 strikeouts. And uh, you know, neither the the Rangers nor the Red Sox were really playing for anything. Uh, did you did you have any issue with that, or do you think of it similar to your experience, where it's like, listen, at the end of the day. This is a tremendous accomplishment for someone, and no one is harmed because this played out that way. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to be critical of that. Um, I mean, at the time when it happened, I, I wasn't a big fan of it, to be honest. I mean, it was, you know, 200 strikeouts is, you know, in modern times, that is, but, you know, that's a, a great accomplishment. Um, you know, 300 strikeouts used to be more of the you know, that type of accomplishment. And, you know, with the game, the situation of the game and a close game, I I mean, I didn't really like it that much. But, you know, I mean, I'm not going to knock the guy. But both teams were out of the race. And, you know, it's a personal achievement that he may never have an opportunity to do again. 